Welcome to the New Books Network. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is sponsored by the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, the Griffith Asia Institute, the New York Southeast Asia Network, the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies, and the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Patrick Jory. I teach Southeast Asian history at the University of Queensland, Australia, and I'm co-host of this channel. Vietnam and Russia share a common socialist history dating back to the Cold War. But since the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991 and Vietnam's Doi Mui reforms, Russia has also become a destination for Vietnamese labour migrants who dream of making their fortune. Working in markets, garment factories, and as small traders, both legally and illegally, they live precarious lives, harassed by police, loan sharks, market bosses, and criminals. While huge profits can be made, these migrants are acutely vulnerable to sudden changes in market conditions and government policy, not to mention the bitter Russian cold. In this remarkably researched book, Lan Ang Huang presents an astonishing account of the struggles of Vietnamese migrants in Russia. The book also raises broader issues about the global phenomenon of labour migration of unskilled Asian workers, and perhaps most poignantly about how conditions of acute uncertainty and dependence on the market in a foreign land upset migrants' normal conceptions of social values and morality. Vietnamese migrants in Russia, mobility in times of uncertainty, won the 2022 Association of Mainland Southeast Asian Studies Prize for Best First Book. Today, I'm very happy to be talking to the book's author, Lan Ang Huang. Lan is Associate Professor of Development Studies at the University of Melbourne, Australia. Lan, thanks so much for coming on New Books in Southeast Asian Studies to talk about your book. Thank you very much, Patrick. It's a pleasure to be here today. Let's start by talking about how you became interested in this topic. You have a close personal connection to Russia, which you touch on in the book. You speak Russian, you've lived there, and your family history is tied up with uh, Vietnamese migration to the former Soviet Union and Russia. Can you tell us about this connection you have with Russia? My connection with Russia or Russian society is deeply personal. So I was born in post-war Vietnam, and at that time, Russian was taught in almost every Vietnamese school. So I learned Russian for 11 years. I even got a BA, a bachelor degree in Russian. But of course, when I just before I entered university, uh, Soviet Union collapsed and I couldn't migrate to Russia to study as planned. So I had to make a few changes to my uh, career path. But I became interested in migration as a PhD student and then continued to do research on Vietnamese migration since my PhD. Uh, and so this topic came to me very naturally. I thought that I had to do something. I had to write about Vietnamese migrants in Russia. One of them is my sister, my my only sibling. And it's also connected to my family history. My father studied physics in Russia during the war and then he went back to Russia to the Soviet Union to work for six years after we were born. Um, so my sister is still living in Russia and I, as, as a migration researcher, I discovered that there has been no in-depth research on Vietnamese in, in Russia, even though there are about 150,000 of them there, and most of them are undocumented migrants living very precariously, as you introduced. So, yeah, I thought that I had to write this book and to bring voices of Vietnamese migrants to to the wider community. 
Before we get into the substance of the book, I wanted to talk to you about the very impressive research that went into it. Uh, the fieldwork research for the book in particular must have been extremely challenging. I, I just can't imagine how you went about <laughs> those, those ethic approvals that we all have to go through. Uh, ca- can you tell the listener how you went about carrying out the research for this book? So I couldn't even foresee the difficulties uh, with fieldwork in Moscow when I applied for ethics approval at the University of Melbourne where I work. Yeah, I mentioned the risk, but it was not like, you know, I would I wouldn't think it would be risk of physical violence because I through social media and through mainstream media I know that the rate of xenophobic attacks against foreigners in Russia has decreased uh, very sharply since uh, the turn of the millennium but it was very hard to access uh, my migrant participants research participants and it was very hard to conduct research openly at the market because the the wholesale markets in Moscow are ruled uh, with, you know, um, I, I run with rules akin to those of the mafia. So I had to be very discreet. I, for example, I couldn't carry uh, my usual camera. So I had to take uh, photos discreetly. Um, and also I had to uh, make sure that my research could pose uh, no dangers to my research participants. Because uh, even though, you know, I was not conducting formal interviews, you know, they can be identified in my book. So I had to make sure that they cannot be identified or they would be subjected to persecution or, you know, punishment by market bosses. Personally, I didn't uh, encounter any incidents of physical violence to myself during fieldwork, but I was subjected to spot checks by Russian police and I had to make sure that I didn't go out in the dark because I live in the same suburb where Vietnamese migrants lived and it could be unsafe to go out in the dark. So like like my research participants, the rule is not to go out in the dark and to stay in the crowd, is to stick with other people. The subject of your book is, of course, framed by a much broader transformation that takes place in the 1980s and the 1990s. That is the sudden transition in both the USSR or Russia and Vietnam from socialist to market economies. And you're interested in the effect of this transformation, as well as the rise of mobility in migration, the effect on the core social values, I quote here, the core social values and cultural logics underpinning Vietnamese personhood. What do you mean by that? Yes, yeah, so as you might be aware, you know, in socialist doctrine, making money uh, or market trade were considered immoral during socialist, socialist era in both uh, USSR and in Vietnam and in all socialist countries. So market trade uh, was conducted, you know, behind closed doors, you know, and, you know, people could be subjected to arrest and um, prosecution if they were caught trading, you know, illegally. So the, the economic reforms in Vietnam and the collapse of the communist regime in Eastern Europe has completely changed the way people earn their living, uh, conduct business and conduct their social life in general because now um, having money, uh, becoming wealthy is uh, held in high regard. You know, you, um, success is attached to having money. So it's, it's, it's very different and that completely has completely transformed the way people think about themselves, the, the job that they, they hold, you know, the, how they earn their living and how they, um, their relationship with money. 
One of the reasons your book is so unique, I think, is that so much scholarship is focused on the subject of Vietnamese refugees after the Vietnam War, but relatively little on Vietnamese labour migration. In my ignorance, I wasn't aware that today there's a large Vietnamese migrant community in Russia. Unlike for the Chinese, overseas labour migration for the Vietnamese is a relatively recent phenomenon. When did Vietnamese labour migration to Russia start? What caused it and how has it changed over time? So Vietnamese students were sent to the former Soviet Union in the from the 1950s and 60s, and my father was one of them, but only in very small numbers, you know, like the children of uh, the war martyrs and the communist captors um, were sent to Russia, to, to Soviet Union and other Eastern European countries to study, to study during the war. And then um, when the war ended in 1975, Vietnam, the Vietnamese economy uh, was ran into trouble. You know, the, there was collectivization of the economy, subsidized economy at that time. And Vietnam started to export labor first, you know, to repay the war debt to communist allies in Europe and secondly to relieve unemployment and to generate an extra source of hard currency for the Vietnamese um, economy at that time. They started to export labor to former Soviet Union and Eastern European countries in the early 1980s and it, it only stopped in at the end of the 80s when communist regimes in Europe collapsed. Yeah, but so a lot of people were repatriated, the students and contract migrant workers were repatriated in late 1980s, early 1990s. But the impact of economic reforms in Vietnam was not very visible at that time. And so the return migrants struggled to integrate, struggled to find a job um, and to earn a living. So many uh, made their way back they returned to the to Eastern Europe, including Russia, to work, and they brought with them their families, friends, neighbors, and fellow villagers. Um, and these people brought their own networks. So, yeah, Vietnamese kept coming, keep coming to to Russia since. Okay, so who are these Vietnamese labor migrants to Russia? Where do they come from? What's their background? How do they get to Russia, and and what do they do there? The demographics of Vietnamese migrants in Russia are tightly linked to this history of labor exploitation and, and uh, micro- education migra- migration from the communist North, North Vietnam and uh, North Central Vietnam. So during the war, Vietnam was split into the communist North and the capitalist South, backed by United States. And so the people who was, who were sent before the collapse of the Soviet Union, the people who were sent to Eastern Europe were exclusively from the north and north central. So the, the people you see in Russia nowadays are also from the same regions. They tend to come from poor rural families and they tend to choose to migrate to Russia as, you know, like a second best option uh, because they are aware of the hardships and of the dangers awaiting them in Russia. But, you know, um, these are also the regions of Vietnam where there's a lot of uh, population pressure on land. There's high rate of unemployment and underemployment. And these people, prior to my migration to Russia, they tend not to be employed in the former economy. They don't have any prior experience holding a former job. So migration to Russia 
Russia is like a, a, an opportunity for you know to change their life and to earn a fortune and to 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 go back in Vietnam and you know to maybe upgrade to um, the middle class by acquiring private properties and you know sending their children to private schools and universities to get higher education credentials. So, yeah, they tend to come to Russia on short-term visas, usually a study visa or a tourist visa, most commonly tourist visa, which is valid for 30 days, and then they overstay it. Some manage to acquire legal documents like a work permit that is usually valid for three years or dependent visa or student visa. However, you know, they can still be considered by Russian police, Russian authorities as an illegal migrant because Russian bureaucracy, um, migration bureaucracy is very complex. You can be an, considered an illegal migrant in a number of ways. For example, you must live at a, at a, a register address and most of these people do not live at their register address because their uh, migration documents are organized by uh, commercial brokers. And commercial brokers, they register thousands of migrants to uh, a single address. Or because uh, they are, you know, uh, dependents or they are tourists or they are students, they are not allowed to work, but apparently they all work at the market. So they can be considered illegal in that, in that sense. But um, because of the exorbitant cost of uh, migration documents. For example, at the time of my fieldwork in um, 2014, people used, people paid about 3,500 US dollars for a three-year work permit. So for the wealthy traders, this is not a significant amount of money, but many migrants I came into contact with during my fieldwork were struggling. It was a very hard time. If you remember, it was when the war in uh, with Ukraine started, you know, with the annexation of uh, Crimea and so on. So there were sanctions imposed on Russia. And so traders were struggling to make ends meet. And this amount of money could be significant. So a lot of people that I interviewed, that I talked with, didn't have any legal document. So yeah, they largely they are undocumented migrants. The central theme of the book is uncertainty. You write, and I, and I quote, uncertainty in the life of Vietnamese migrants in Russia is not merely a perception. It's a lived experience, a stark reality. It dictates people's conduct of business at the market permeates social and personal relationships and reshapes their sense of moral self. Can you describe what causes this uncertainty and its effects? So uncertainty can can be manifest in in very different ways and different at different levels. Uh, first because of their undocumented status, they can be intercepted on their way to work every day, they can be deported, detained and be deported. So even if they have legal documents, they do not speak Russian well enough to communicate with Russian authorities. And so they are still detained anyway and subject to deportation, even if they have a work permit on them. And the second level of uncertainty comes from the market regime, the exploitative market regime where they work. It is very expensive to rent a place at the market. So at the at Libluno market where I did my field work, for example, my research participants paid about twenty five or twenty thousand US dollars a month to rent a store. So they have to work very hard uh, to make end to make uh, to make ends meet and to in order to pay uh, rent and and to cover labor costs. 
But markets can be closed anytime without any prior notice, any warning, uh, and with immediate effect. And it has happened many times in the past. So uh, Vietnamese, because of the security risk, they tend to keep all their cash, all their income at the market in their store because of the risk of robbery or kidnap on the way home. And when the market is closed, as it happened in the past, like they... You know, they go to the market in the morning to start their trading day and find out that the market has been sealed and they are not allowed to enter. They risk losing everything. They risk losing all the merchandise stock in their store and the cash they keep there, as well as the the users rise to the store. So many people also pay a large sum of money to acquire rights to to rent the store. You know, like it can be $50,000 or $200,000 per store, depending um, on the time we talk about and depending on the location of that store. Yeah, so... The, the market regime is exploitative and also precarious. You know, it can be closed anytime, leaving them uh, bankrupt overnight. And uncertainty can also come about, come from, you know, the, the hostility uh, from local populations against foreigners. Uh, xenophobic attacks are, have become less common, but it, it is a constant risk. You know, and therefore, my research participants try not to venture outside the the daily route from home to market, and that's the only thing they do. They just go home to sleep and then go back to the market, and they don't go anywhere because they are vulnerable to uh, xenophobic attacks. Um, they are also vulnerable to opportunistic crime because um, uh, criminals know that they these people have no recourse to to justice, and so it it's a constant constant uh, threat for them. And uncertainty can also also come from co-ethnics, from the people that they socialize with, they collaborate with, or they have a relationship with. Because of the sense of precarity, vulnerability, and uncertainty in life in Russia, people have a sense of judicious opportunism. You know, like if you have an opportunity opportunity today, you have to grab it before it disappears. So the opportunity could be like, you know, to run away with all the savings that you have saved with your romantic partner, or just to, you know, steal money from your market partner, you know, like sometimes people run the same store together. And, you know, it's a sense like, you know, anything can can happen to you. And, you know, if you don't do bad things to your partner, they might do it before, uh, do it to you before you manage to do so. So, yeah, it life is highly uncertain in that sense because people never know what's going to happen and um, there's a constant sense of crisis you know anticipating crisis uh, that bad luck might strike them bad things might happen anytime any moment so they don't have any long term plan they take one day at a time yes one of the themes that you just touched on then that you explore in the book is the value of trust it's a, a theme you you develop in an interesting way you describe the paradoxically, the lack of interpersonal trust among Vietnamese labor migrants in Russia. And one of the ways you try to explain that is in, in Russia, the what you call the institutional basis or bases of trust are absent for Vietnamese migrants. Can you perhaps say a little more about your exploration of this, this theme? That's a great question. Thank you for asking that, uh, Patrick. Yes, trust is vital. You know, imagining these people are all undocumented migrants who don't speak local language very well. And, you know, um, to 
to survive on their own in Russia. Trust is vital among co-ethnic. Vietnamese people, I could say, are the most vulnerable group of migrants in Russia because they don't tend to speak Russian and they don't get the same level of protection from their government like their Chinese counterparts. So Chinese authorities tend to be very protective of their citizens in Russia and they have intervened on um, on multiple occasions to protect their citizens' rights. Vietnamese know that they are left to, to fend for themselves. And so trusting other Vietnamese in the community is crucial for, for earning a living and for su- surviving Russia. They cannot run a store by themselves. They must work with someone, usually one assistant or you know a family member or a, a, a partner to run the store um, and because they have to you know run the store for long hours every day 12 hours and they have to travel to other markets other places to acquire new merchandise new stock so they need someone to man the store when they are not there when they are not available and also because you know there's also a risk of you know being detained by police and you need someone to come to the police station to uh, to pay money to so that you can be released yeah but then on the other hand as I I have described because of the sense of you know opportunistic opportunism people do not trust each other and they they know that you know their trusted partners or trusted assistants or um or, or colleagues neighbors can do harm to them anytime so they remain very tight-lipped about their daily life, about how they conduct their business, and also the nature of market trade, you know. The marketplace is a place of zero-sum game. The more competitors you have, the more rivals you have, the more people selling the same things, the less likely you succeed. So you have to make sure that there are as few as possible are people selling the same uh, uh, merchandise. And so therefore, you know, you don't tell people about uh, the things that you sell, where you source them and what at what price you sell them. And it has become, you know, a way of life, you know, like become suspicious of everyone and not to tell the truth because keeping everything a secret is crucial for people's survival. And it you know, ironically, it has made people's life more precarious because they cannot trust people and they cannot be trusted. So when in times of crisis, it's very hard for them uh, to turn to someone for support. Yeah, the book has got so many interesting dimensions that come out of the out of the fieldwork. As I got further into the book, it, it seemed to me it became almost less of an ethnography of Vietnamese labour migrants in Russia and more of a kind of really surprising exploration of the subject of morality. It's, it's a big theme in the book. What, what drew you to this subject of morality? I didn't see morality as something central to my research when I started, you know. I thought, you know, all I knew was that these people were living very precariously on the margin of Russian society, and I had to find out how they survive it. And then as I spent more time with my research participants in Moscow, I realized that, you know, morality or the the lack of or maybe changing moral values were like the 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 central theme uh, of what I was looking at because you know how people ran their social lives conducted their social lives how they see other people how they see themselves and how they justify the bad things that they do to other people is deeply moral you know like in the the moral values in Vietnamese society are deeply rooted in the strong kinship network and in the sense of community you know like in Vietnamese culture is deeply rooted in 
Confucian values, you know, the where we see collective interest placed high above personal interests or personal preferences. So it is important to to respect other people and to remain in harmonious relationship with other people and to support other people. You know, there are thousands of proverbs and idioms in Vietnamese culture that can I can use to illustrate that spirit. However, in Russia, people realize that if they follow those, you know, they follow those moral values and and code of conduct, they would expose themselves to dangers and risk, and they could they could be abused and exploited. And so they had to adapt and. And they, when they do bad things, you know, they find a way to justify it. You know, I have to do it to survive. And if I don't do it, other people will do it to me. So moral values, you know, are not manipulated, but I think are reconfigured in such a way that can be used to justify uh, people's actions and people's behaviors. And in in my discussion of morality, I also pay a lot of attention to money, you know, how money has become an alternative, you know, anchor for social relationships. So when you do not share the same moral values or you do not trust that your other uh, people you deal with share the same moral values, then you use money as a replacement to make sure that people remain loyal or that they, you know, do the business with you without, you know, any bad intentions. Yes, I was just going to raise that other very closely related theme that you develop in the book, that is the meaning of money. I found that absolutely fascinating. And you go into some of the theoretical literature, but I think another of the strengths of the book is that you give these really concrete examples from your, your fieldwork. If I can just read a quote from the book, given the uncertainty and lack of trust that we've just been talking about, you write that, and I quote, money seems to be the only steady element with the power to mitigate risks and ensure some degree of certainty and security in people's transnational lives. Can you perhaps develop that a little bit? Yes. So as I mentioned at the beginning, in socialist values, money uh, has, you know, was regarded as, you know, um, it was associated with greed, with immorality. And so in Vietnamese culture, uh, there's an emphasis on tinkam or sentiment, sentiment, you know, or um, tinkam can be translated in different ways, but it could be understood as sentiment or compassion or empathy, you know, like sharing love and, and supporting each other. However, in as I described in, in Russia, you know, it, you cannot expect tinkam from other people, and you do not have the luxury of offering tinkam to to them. And so, mon- money become uh, the main medium of social um, relationship and transactions. People know uh, very well that money is the only thing that remains unchanged in a situation where everything is uh, in a state of flux. You know, the pe- the person sleeping next to you in bed can run away with all the same savings you have tomorrow, the business partner that you uh, trust that owe you an enormous debt can run away without any trace and you cannot track them down and you lose, you know, you can lose hundreds of thousands of dollars in that relationship. So you have to make sure that you can call on people for support and for, yeah, for support in times of need. But how do you do that? You use money, you know? So the wealthy people, the the wealthy people tend to be well connected because they use money to pay for favors you know they they offer generous gifts or they offer they organize get social gatherings to maintain people's loyalty and to maintain relationship and they know that you know without money it is very hard to to maintain that kind of connection and to turn to other people for support at the same time i think your take on this it's not all negative you show quite vividly i think that 
such uncertainty can boost resilience, positivity and optimism. Many of these migrants come from very poor backgrounds and they've got limited options to you know, improve their lives in their own country. And, and the lack of regulation, ironically, lack of regulation in Russia creates lucrative business opportunities for those of them who are smart and lucky perhaps also uh, enough to, to, to exploit them. And you give lots of examples of Vietnamese who have indeed made their fortunes in Russia. Perhaps tell us about some of these these migrants. Yeah, so luck can come to people anytime. You know, like I, I can recount a few very different examples. Like um, one of the research participants in my book came to Russia immediately after the fall of the Soviet Union and they became broker, migration broker and money transfer agent and uh, built a fortune from that business because, you know, Vietnamese in Russia are undocumented. So they cannot use the formal banking system. Most of the money flowing between Russia and Vietnam is via informal channels. And because they are undocumented, you know, there's a, a huge demand for migration papers. You know, the people don't speak Russian and they don't know how to deal with Russian bureaucrats. And so they go to brokers every time they need any paper, any help with authorities, you know. So yeah, they, you know, this this broker that was in my book, she owned dozens of properties all over Vietnam. And she also owned two very big spacious flats. I visited them in Moscow. And she attempted to migrate to Canada with her, her husband, her, her partner, not um, legal legally married husband and a daughter, but uh, they failed because they could not prove the source of their wealth. But that's only one example. Another striking example is of someone, a very poor rural migrant with only secondary school diploma who went to Russia to work as, you know, itinerant vendor selling tea from door to door. And then he realized that most Vietnamese just focus on selling outer clothing, you know, like outer garments and not underwear. So he set up a small, you know, firstly, you know, just um, uh, at the corner of the market, a, a small a table, you know, selling uh, underwear. And then it became very lucrative and then it ex- expanded. And within just a few years, he became, you know, a, a US dollar millionaire, you know, and now he's owning four very big stores at Sadabot Market, where I did my, where I did most of my field work. So yeah, things can change very quickly. Uncertainty is a source of vulnerabilities and precarity, but uncertainty also brings very nice surprises. It can make very poor migrants become a millionaire overnight. That's capitalism. Yeah. <laughs> uh, another dimension of your fascinating exploration of morality in the book is your discussion of the realm of love and sexual relationships within the Vietnamese migrant community in Russia. You show in a fascinating way how the normal, let's say conservative or traditional mores governing such relationships break down. Uh, under these conditions, it's not necessarily all a bad thing, but it's another it seems to me another dimension of the, you know, the uh, suspension of normal moral codes governing social relations in the the quite peculiar economic and social context of the Vietnamese migrant community in Russia. Yeah. So, firstly, you know, people know that they are very far away from home. And because of the insecurity and precarity of life in Russia, very rarely people bring their children um, or their partner because, you know, the other pet partner has to stay at home to stay in Vietnam to look after children. So, they are usually in Russia on, on their own. And the sense of anonymity, of being away from the ears and eyes of the community, the sense of freedom, you know, like you can do things that you have. Or 
you have always secretly been wishing to do uh, in Russia without any significant impact on your future back home with the family in Vietnam. That's the first thing. But, you know, the main thing that I discuss in the book is like, you know, love and sex and intimacy um, uh, change, you know, the, the meanings of love and sex and intimacy are changed in the context of Russia, where uh, people always um, anticipate that bad things might happen anytime. They might be uh, detained, might be deported, might be robbed, might be kidnapped uh, or raped anytime. So they need someone to count on, you know, they need that special someone who could come to the rescue, come, you know, who could support them in terms of need and exchange for that support, future support in exchange for that care and protection. They have to do something in return. And that's usually, you know, sexual favors or, or you know, um, what I call, you know, emotional labor, you know. So people uh, call each other, you know, uh, Russia husband and Russia wife, you know, like they all have married partners in Vietnam. But once they are in Russia, they have, you know, a very long-term partner in Russia, you know, and they call them, you know, Russia temporary husband, temporary wife, because they need that special someone to, to count on. And also, you know, like new immigrants, especially when you, you don't have much capital, financial capital, you don't have the, the social networks, and you are new to market trade, you need to be partner with someone who has financial resources, who has the connections and who has the business skills to support you. And so, yeah, in order to survive and in order to, to thrive in Russia, you know, um, you, you need to exchange emotional labor and intimacy for that kind of support. One example you give, it's very interesting that traditional gender norms governing sexual relationships break down. And you write that often young men will take up with much older women for economic reasons. In one part of the book, I think you call these relationships survival intimacies. Yes, yeah, that's right. Because, you know, these young men, the, 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 the new immigrants from Vietnam tend to be a male, young and rural. And these people, you know, the easiest way to find their way into market trade and to survive there is to be partner with an established migrant trader. And usually these are women who are either um, spatially separated from their married partners or have divorced their partners. So in the book, I also uh, discuss how long-term migration in Russia has led to marital dissolution. You know, it, result, it has resulted in marital disruption and broken intergenerational relationships relationships in many situations yeah so it's it is not uncommon for young men young uh, young men without any financial resources to be partner with uh, a divorce or separated uh, migrant women traders who have the knowledge and the resources and the connections this touches on another, another issue that is the differing roles or different differing economic roles of Vietnamese migrant women and men in Russia you write that I quote here, women tend to play a dominant role in the day-to-day running of their business, while men assume the role of helpers who fill in for the women when the latter are not available. Can you perhaps say a little bit about the different gender roles in the, in the migrant community? So market trade has always been considered a female domain in Vietnamese culture. It is believed that 
women are more um, dexterous, you know, like socially astute and more flexible and know how to communicate with haggling customers. And therefore, even in the books about Vietnamese market traders in Vietnam, you can find that most of the traders at uh, Vietnamese markets are female because of these gender norm and, and gender stereotype. And so it's not different in Russia, even though in Russia you tend to find more male traders than than female traders than in Vietnam because in some situation you know men cannot bring their wives because wives has to stay at home to look after children but still predominantly the markers the, the the market traders that I met in Moscow are female and men play the role of helpers or you know like carrying big loads you know because you know these people usually trade in garments and in textile in footwear and so it require you know a very very a lot of manual labor to ferry stock from one place to another to look after the the store not the store but the storage sorry and to you know like men also tend to go to the market early in the morning to set up the store for the day because market traders have to start very early at 5 a.m. in the morning and it can be very dark very cold and uh, can be dangerous in in winter and so men you know tend to go to the market first set up the store for the day and then women come later but women uh, tend to play a more important role in terms of dealing with customers and you know communication and men you know take care of the other supposedly dangerous or arduous task. If we might zoom out a bit, towards the end of the book, you ask some bigger theoretical questions about social relationships. Uh, You write that, uh, again, I quote, the political economy of migration holds the key to our understanding of how human relationships are reconfigured in the context of migration and mobility. Can you tell us what you mean by this? Yeah, and I didn't make this conclusion lightly, you know. It is based on research that I have conducted on a wide range of contexts. So for my PhD research, I study Vietnamese migrants in Vietnam, and then I did a postdoc on a a very large-scale project on labor migration from four Southeast Asian countries, including Thailand, Indonesia, the Philippines, and Vietnam, to other Asian countries for contract labor migration. And then this project on Vietnamese undocumented migrants in Russia. And after the Russia project, I'm conducting a a study on Vietnamese migrants in Australia. So in every context, I find that, you know, how Vietnamese conduct their social lives, how they see themselves in relation to other people is highly, uh, you know, it's, it's deeply embedded in the political economy of that migration regime, how they are treated as a migrant migration subjects and whether their lives are precarious or not, and whether they can, you know, uh, turn to their co-ethnic networks for uh, for support. So the fact that Vietnamese in Russia resort to very extreme behaviors is, you know, tell us about how they are being treated by post-Soviet Russia's migration regime, where they are not seen as human beings, you know, just, you know, illegal individuals living on the margin of Russian society, where they have no, absolutely no human rights. And when, where they are left to fend for themselves, they can't even go to the Vietnamese embassy for support because the Vietnamese embassy in Russia is well known to Vietnamese communities as highly corrupt. They are only after money and and not, you know, they are not there to protect their citizens' rights. So yes, if we are to understand Vietnamese social relationships and uh, their moral values, 
values and their social practice, it is important to place all these within the wider, the broader context of uh, the migration regime, as well as um, the transnational networks that they are embedded in. It's a powerful book, if I might say so. Can I ask you how Vietnamese people have reacted to the book, both overseas Vietnamese and those in Vietnam? To be honest, I'm not. I don't know because most of the people who have read the book are non-Vietnamese because it is not accessible. Firstly, because the book is not cheap, it is also very theoretical. So it's not like you know a lot of my friends, you know, connections in Vietnam are very interested in the book, but they haven't read it. I think because they find it challenging the language and the the, the concepts that I discuss in the book, but. Hopefully, I can find the time to translate it into Vietnamese and publish it in Vietnam in the future, maybe to simplify it a bit, to make it more um, accessible to people, because there are a lot of people in Vietnam with connections to, to Russia. And I guess there's a lot of interest in the book. And it might change, totally change the way people think about Russia uh, and Russian people, uh, as well as migrant lives in, in Russia or in general. I can't conclude without asking you about the current situation in Russia since the invasion of Ukraine earlier this year. Has has that affected Vietnamese labour migrants in Russia? Are you still in touch with your informants? Yeah, I am. I'm still in touch with them and I have been maintaining relationship with my research participants on Facebook. So every time I met someone, I asked them for their Facebook and hey, added them. So yeah, um, I know that they are struggling, uh, firstly because of the economic sanctions of Russia's um, isolation. And so the value of the Russian ruble has dropped and it has affected these traders significantly because most of the things that they sell at the market are important. So the value of Russian ruble has uh, not helped them. And the, the, the cost of daily, daily living has increased, of course, because Russia used to import a lot of groceries, you know, daily items, consumer items from other countries. So uh, the economic sanctions have really affected their lives. And because, you know, Russian people, you know, local Russians are struggling to, to make ends meet, they are less likely to shop at the market. And th- that has had an impact on migrants' lives. So uh, some of the research participants in my book are planning to return to Vietnam for good. But of course, you know, most of these people are have been here for quite some time and they have accumulated enough saving and they think that they can live comfortably upon their return in Vietnam uh, without working in in, in the Vietnamese economy. And the young, inexperienced and not very well-stocked Vietnamese migrants, you know, in their early, in their 20s or 30s are still staying. They do not plan to return home because what can they do at home? You know, it's the, 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 what has kept you know, has made uh, people come to Russia is the hope, you know, is the hope that lure them to Russia and is the hope that keep them there in Russia despite all these adversities. So, you know, these young people who haven't managed to save enough money, uh, they still hope that the situation will change uh, for the better um, soonish. Finally, you might know that we always like to ask our interviewees if they're working on a new project and if they could give us a sneak preview of what that project's about. 
Yeah, so I have just completed analyzing data from uh, my new project on Vietnamese migrants in Australia. In this project, I focus on the intermediaries, you know, the brokers, the uh, the education agents, and the social connections that inspire people um, to migrate to Australia and facilitate the, their their moves and faci- facilitate their integration in in Australian society. So. This book uh, doesn't have much drama, as as much drama as my book on uh, Vietnamese in Russia. But it is, you know, like given the growing number of Vietnamese, the expanding Vietnamese population in Russia, uh, in Australia, we have had very little, we have seen very little research on these people. So I hope that it will be of some interest. And especially my research, at least at the initial stage of data analysis, I can already see some interesting aspects, such as, you know, the fact that we tend to believe that student migrants and skilled immigrants um, are not precarious, they're not vulnerable, and they uh, are more secure. And it's not, it is not true in reality. And because, you know, a lot of people migrate to Australia with, you know, fake uh, financial proof. They and their families cannot really afford it, but they know that this is like an opportunity for a better life. And so they pull resources or they borrow big, you know, amount of money to finance their migration. And once they are in Australia, you know, they face a lot of labor expo- exploitation from mostly from Vietnamese co-ethnic employers. And also they some, you know, become overstayers, but become undocumented migrants because they cannot renew their short-term visa, student visa, or, you know, the, any visa that brought them here in Australia. So yes, that, uh, that's the project that I'm working on. But, you know, I've I'm already working on the next project after that, maybe running them uh, in parallel. Um, It's on Vietnamese undocumented migrants in in Japan. So Vietnam has recently become the second largest group of foreigners in Japan. And a lot of these people are migrants, are are student migrants and the so-called technical trainees or technical interns. And they also have very precarious lives and many have become illegal uh, because of uh, labor exploitation. And because of the migration in that nets. So, yeah, so um, I'm working on these two projects at the same time. What a great pipeline of research. We can't wait to see the publications come out. Lan Ang Huang, thank you very much for making time to talk to us on this episode of New Books in Southeast Asian Studies to discuss your new book, Vietnamese Migrants in Russia Mobility in Times of Uncertainty, published in 2020 by Amsterdam University Press. Thank you very much for the opportunity to share my research with the wider audience. Thank you, Patrick, and have a good day. And you've been listening to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thanks, everyone, for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you're interested in other podcasts about books on Vietnam, check out the New Books in Southeast Asian Studies podcast channel where you'll find numerous interviews with authors of recent books on various aspects of of Vietnam. You can download or stream this interview or thousands more free of charge via the New Books Network website or iTunes. 